Am I guilty of murder, or am I just plain stupid? This is a true story, one that's going to be kind of hard to tell. It's not like the earlier podcasts, Tales from the Edge, the hungry bear at the door, the attack by pirates, or the terror at 3,000 feet. No, this is worse, far worse. I've written about it, but I've never spoken of it. It's something I just need to finally get off my chest. I'm responsible for taking the life of a child. The boy's mother thinks I'm a murderer. It happened a few years ago when I was working for the United Nations in Somalia. I was a relief worker. I was hired to save lives, not to take them. A few weeks earlier, Jackie and I had arrived in East Africa after crossing the Indian Ocean on my sailboat. After making landfall on Kenya, she went back home and I was offered a job as a relief worker. The UN was desperate and they were in a hurry. There was a humanitarian crisis and they were looking for people with maritime experience to drive supply boats in a region that was hit with catastrophic floods in Somalia. Somalia? Where the hell is Somalia? I knew nothing about Somalia except for the movie Black Hawk Down when a number of American soldiers were killed, and that was a military operation. This job was to save lives and feed people. We were the good guys. No guns, no helicopters, just delivering bags of food and boxes of medicines. I was going to be with the UN, and nobody hates the UN, or do they? So I really didn't think twice about it. It paid well, and I signed up. At the first briefing in Nairobi, the UN people did warn us that uh, the job was going to be a little dangerous, but don't worry. If the bullets begin to fly, they'd get us out of there. Bullets? Some of the guys had done relief work in dangerous places before, and they didn't react. It was evident who were the greenhorns in the room by our expressions which brought a few private smiles from the battle-hardened veterans. The mission leader added that Somalia had no central government and was in a state of near anarchy. What law there was was determined by the barrel of a gun. While the UN was classifying the country as a humanitarian crisis, it was also classifying it as a war zone. So, guys, last chance. If anybody wants to back out, now's the time to go. We all looked at each other, and who was going to chicken out? And no one did. Heavy monsoon rains were causing floods that submerged most of Somalia's agricultural heartland. The rains that were causing these floods had started without warning. For weeks it had been normally dry, and the crops were ready to harvest. But one day, ominous black clouds rolled in off the ocean and merged with storms that drifted down from the north, and the skies opened up. Thousands of people were drowning, and nearly a million were made homeless and were starving. I and a few others were to drive riverboats through the floods to deliver medical supplies, food, clothing, and emergency shelter. And, where possible, rescue people stranded by the rising waters. The motorboat that uh, was to load with emergency supplies was donated by the Norwegian government. I guess you could expect that and as such a big bureaucracy, it was hardly fit for purpose. The boat was a sleek, metallic blue speedboat built for water skiing. Plastered on the side were decals of the manufacturer's name and goofy, laughing, cartoon faces. 
I was told in Nairobi that the donor didn't want his name removed in case a television crew might film the disaster. I could just imagine delivering food to the starving, medicine to the sick and to the dying, shelter to those who lost their homes, driving a speedboat with laughing cartoons on the side. I took off the cartoons. I and my boat had been helicoptered to a staging point for operations on top of a dike upriver from Morari. Now, Morari was a prosperous farm town on the banks of the Juba River. Protected by dikes and canal, the town was the center of what was known as the breadbasket of Somalia, flat land surrounded by plains of grazing cattle and goats, sugarcane, bananas, maize, and sorghum. The waters were rising steadily, about three inches an hour. The night before, the river had climbed over the embankment and crept through the village, slowly consuming everything in its path. Soon, there wouldn't be much left of the town. The flood waters were rising so fast, the townspeople were climbing onto the roofs of their collapsing homes, and they were scared to death, waving desperately for rescue as the fast-moving current threatened to flush their homes down the river and out to sea. Women and children huddled together under plastic sheeting for warmth. Some used wraparound sarongs as cover that only deadened the sting of the pelting rains that never seemed to end. Some had fled into the trees. One of my colleagues rescued a woman and her child clinging to the limb of a mango tree as a crocodile swam underneath. The half-submerged cement mosque stood okay, but some of the mud and stick homes were slowly breaking apart from the pressure of the fast-moving water. I was surprised that these wattle homes with thatched roofs were so solid, but I could never be expected to withstand the force of the flood. Most of Marari's population were fleeing to the dike above the village. I'd ferry one family after another from the roofs to the dike, one after the other. It was frustrating. Had I a bigger boat, I could have taken more people instead of leaving those on the roofs fearful that they wouldn't be there when I got back. And there were some close calls. I remember one case when a mother and a father and three kids were close to panic when I pulled up to what was left of their home. They barely made it getting into my boat just as their home collapsed underneath them. Those I could take to the dike were not much safer there. Sections of earth were crumbling, breaking off, and tumbling into the water. If the dike burst, the flood would take hundreds of people with it. Delivering supplies to those who had taken refuge in the dike became difficult as the river rose. Only by sighting a familiar tree could I know where the village had once been. Not just a few times did I scrape across the roof of a submerged house or bump into the top of a tractor, damaging the propeller of my outboard. Now, reciting all this, this all seemed rather matter-of-fact, but, you know, I never really had time to reflect what I was doing, to put the events and the emotions and sensations into some perspective. I was just determined to do the job, help a bunch of people who were scared and who needed help. But who am I trying to kid? I didn't sign on to help people. That was my job. I joined the relief efforts because it was an adventure. Once the villagers were moved to land, I was assigned to deliver supplies to those stranded on the dike. 
So frustrating small was my boat that I could carry only a few sacks of maize meal, flour, and tarps. And like my little water ski boat, not all that was donated made a lot of sense. <laughs> Inside one box were a dozen small blankets, electric blankets. There was no electricity for many miles and blankets. Well, not much good there. Not in this tropic heat. The villagers knew when I was coming. They recognized the sound of the approaching motor from downriver and waited for their one distraction of the day. They stood on the dike looking down at my inadequate contribution of supplies in silence. The youngest children ran along the base of the dike to greet me as I approached, excitedly splashing into the water toward the boat, and when the swirling current and the crumbling dike, it was very difficult to maneuver, but the older kids kept the younger ones under control. I tried to learn a little of their language. As many who know me can tell you, I can be a bit of a clown, so when I greeted them in Somali, some of the kids did respond. You can just picture it, a foolish white man wearing a tool belt looking like a telephone lineman, trying somehow to brighten the lives of these poor kids. Yet they greet me back with squeals of laughter, especially the young ones. It was such a rush to see them having fun. A scrawny little boy of about six or seven, wearing only the bare remains of shorts, waded through the water to my boat. The child was reed-thin, ribs like a washboard, evidently very, very hungry. He had a sweet, angelic face and bright, curious eyes and a wide, bright smile. He shouted at me. Yusef, the Somali liaison man, translated, He asks your name. John, I shouted. Oh, you Mr. John John. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm Mr. John John. Every trip becomes a lesson in Somali, a lesson about children. Through this little boy, the other children learn. I had taught him good morning, and when I arrive, they shout good morning. The children are eager to learn, but it's the energetic little boy with a personality who leads the crowd. Much water, I shout. I sweep my hand over the flood in front of us. Much water, the children shout. Be a badan. Be a badan, I respond, and the kids are delighted. No problem, I shout. No problem. Deep Malay, no problem, they shout back. And I shout back, deep Malay, no problem. The brash boys, the shy little girls, the smaller naked children make me feel welcome. They're a good audience. I make funny faces and they laugh. I even dance a little jig in the boat and they mimic me with a similar dance on shore. I act the madman and they love it. There I am, a 50-something blonde-haired relief worker standing in a boat before this helpless group of children, belting out at the top of my lungs, peanut butter sitting on a railroad track, his heart was all a flutter, along came a train around the track, choo-choo peanut butter. I have no idea where I pick up that silly childish melody, but it sure does get him to laugh. And I got to say that to experience their genuine pleasure and their open expressions of unquestioned trust, it really is a great personal joy. For a little while, I ease them out of their muddy, homeless drudgery. And it's then that I begin to feel that I'm helping people. And I have to admit that I'm personally getting some good out of it, to make people smile, to laugh. Those who need to smile and to laugh, it's, I guess it's selfish. But it's a joy to see them a little happy. I remember thinking at the time, if this is what relief work is all about, then I could stay on for another tour. But 
You know what they say about people like me, scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. In a week or so, the water seemed to stop rising, and hallelujah, the sun begins to break through the clouds, and I remember one day, waiting in my boat below the dike, a strange white cloud, like a thick mist, drifted towards me just over the surface of the water. The cloud slowed and stopped in front of me, and without realizing, I was, was surrounded. I was swallowed by a gentle white cloud of tiny white butterflies, like feathery down you'd find in a pillow. They landed on my arms, my shoulder, and my hair, and then just as quickly they moved on, drifting further down the river. Later, old Yusuf said that the butterflies were a sign the flood would soon be receding, and we could all go home. I thought at the time I wasn't quite ready to end this surreal adventure. While it was good news to us, the hundreds of townspeople had no homes to go back to. They were still in dire need. Many on the narrow dike were malnourished and were children stricken with malaria. There was a fear of cholera, and they lived day to day without much hope of a future in front of them. One particular day starts off well. I would have no idea that it would turn out to be one of the most horrible days of my life. The sun is shining, and the remains of the village are now visible. There seems to be some hope in the air. Good morning, Mr. John John. It's the curious little boy who first asked my name on an earlier trip. The little boy wades to the boat and proudly hands me a baggie of tobacco. An old man on top of the dike grins and offers a little salute with his walking stick. Now, locked in the forepeak of my boat are a few packets of HDRs, Human Daily Rations, emergency food for us or the locals. These bright yellow packets provide about 2,200 calories, enough to sustain a person for a day. Inside each packet is some halal food acceptable to Muslims, foil packages of lentil stew or pasta with tomato sauce or red beans and rice and shortbread, peanut butter and jam and fig bars, and a book of matches decorated with the American flag. Most people don't eat these main meals unless there is nothing else available, but the fruit bars, well, they're like candy, a sugar fix. I pull out the foil-packed fig bar and hand it to the boy as a reward for the tobacco. The cheerful sounds of the other kids suddenly stop. The silence lasts for as long as it takes for the child to realize what's going to come next. The children, only moments before, so cheerful and happy, erupt in screams of outrage. Incredibly, they become a mob. They charge down the slope to attack my little friend. The boy looks up at me, his dark eyes wide with fear. The children rush through the water toward the boy, shouting in fury. The boy runs, but he can't run fast enough. They reach him, they grab him by the arms, and force him down into the water. I can't realize what I'm seeing. It's not possible. These are happy, playful children. But this really is an attack. Their clawing fingers try to pry away the child's precious reward. It's just a damn fig bar, for God's sakes. He holds on and gathers it tightly into the pit of his stomach. He dodges and twists through the mud, chased by the frenzied children. He runs up the embankment but is blocked by the older boys, who, with their arms crossed, form an impenetrable wall. He turns, runs back down to the shallow water with a mob on his tail. He's calling to me. He's shouting for me. 
I can't interfere. I can do nothing. The pack catches him, surrounds him, and wrestles him to the ground. He disappears somewhere in the middle of the angry crowd. He manages to wiggle out, crawl onto his hands and knees into the water. He's carrying several of the punching and scratching children on his back. It's like a shark feed. He shakes them off. He's in the water up to his waist, and he seems about to break out. And I'm shouting at him to come to the boat. Now's a good time. Come. The mob reforms and attacks him again. He disappears briefly under the water. The children continue jumping, and they're pounding, slapping blindly at him. Finally, his tiny black head breaks the surface. He gasps for air. Older boys grab him and drag him back into the mud and continue to beat him while another boy tries to pry the treat from his little fist. The child curls into a ball. An older boy kicks him in the head once, twice, and then again. I can't get out of the boat. There are too many children and too many adults who have now come down to the water's edge to watch. The adults stand silent, immobile. They do nothing. They say nothing. It has become gladiatorial, a blood sport. Stop this, I shout. Stop! The adults turn to me, tamp their open hands downward, orders for me to relax. Let it play out. They're just kids. The little boy stumbles away from the attack and falls onto his knees into the shallow water. His eyes are nearly closed from the beating, and he's bleeding. There's no sign that he's crying. He still has something in his hand. Suddenly, three older boys leap off the land onto the boy's back and punch him in the head. One pulls his legs out from under him, sending him face down into the water. And it looks like, well, it looks like he's, they're trying to drown him. I can't stand it any longer. I jump out of my boat and bull my way through the mob of children. A sudden shout and the biggest boy in his early teens raises his fist in victory with a crushed silver packet of the fig bar in his hand. The battle is over. I reach down and pull the child up and out. He is sputtering and gagging and barely conscious. We are ignored and a few of the villagers begin to slowly return up the hillside. Entertainment over. My little friend opens his eyes and seeing me suddenly shrieks with fright and he passes out. I stand before a dark wall of strange people staring at me from the dike above. No faces, only a black curtain of hostility. It's a standoff. The children, so violent a mo moment before, stare at me at silence. No anger on their faces, no threat. They're waiting for me to make the next move. The adults above are sort of rumbling like thunder in the distance. They're looking down at me with condemnation. What? Is it because I did something so stupid? Because I didn't give every single one of them a little goodie? Maybe they think I treated them like animals in a zoo that I consciously manipulated them, toyed with their primal instincts, their most basic needs. A woman fights her way through the villagers above. Seeing the boy at my feet, she utters a shrill cry and stumbles down the embankment and drops to her knees at the child. Her colorful wraparound kanga swaddles an infant to her back, who, now awake, begins to scream. She grabs the boy's lifeless face with two hands and shakes. The child doesn't move. The mother looks up at me, and in a shriek that deafens, screams unintelligible, frightening charges of accusation. I retreat slowly, and I walk backward to the boat. I dare not take my eyes away from her, or she will attack. My own standoff with her is my only defense. Yusuf 
elbows his way through the crowd and down to the water's edge. You come now, now! He grabs me roughly by the arm and pulls me to the boat. The mother's voice cuts through the sound of the outboard as we motor away. I hear her voice even when we're out of sight. You going to be all right? Yusef shrugs. Bantu people. He's not real Somali. Back at the base, one of my British colleagues admitted it was a lesson the Brits learned long ago in Northern Ireland, and the Americans learned in Mogadishu, that handing out sweets to children doesn't win any favors at all. Then he added, it's just too bad a child has to suffer so that an aid worker can learn a lesson. Yusef joined us later in the evening. He chose his words carefully. You must not go back to Merari. Yeah, sure, all right. Is he okay? No, he said. The boy died. If you've enjoyed this tale from The Edge, subscribe and like and share. And thank you for listening.